Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Have you ever seen a child that is just, whether it's because they're so young or they're just in a safe environment, they're just totally and completely uninhibited. You know, isn't it fun just to see children like that? Christina and I, you know, we're at a stage in life where as our kids are getting older, we like to go back and watch videos and look at photos that we took of them as they were growing up. And there's this one video that we have of our middle daughter, our second daughter, Violet. She's 13 years old now, but this video is of Violet when she was about one and a half years old. And she was an active little girl. And this particular video is taken right when she woke up from one of her naps. So she was feeling refreshed and she was the kind of girl that the nap was over and she was just down to play and just have fun. So her batteries were charged. And so she, we would, she woke up, she took her sippy cup filled with warm milk and we gave it to her. And for some reason, she decided that she wanted to sit in front of mom and dad. And instead of sitting in a chair or sitting on the floor, she wanted to sit on the coffee table in our living room. And as she started chugging this milk, she just kind of forgot that we were there. And so she started taking her feet, and as she drank her sippy cup, she just started spinning around in a circle, you know, as she was drinking this cup. And she just was spinning and spinning and spinning, and she started talking to herself and singing to herself. And then, so we got out the camera, and we just started filming this, because it just was just like, man, this is so cool what you're doing right now. And then every once in a while, she'd stop, look at us kind of smile a little bit, and then start spinning all over again. Just free, just a child. And you know, as we grow in life, we lose some of that inhibition, don't we? But for the people you love, isn't it wonderful when those little pockets, those little moments come where they're so comfortable, they're so free with you that it's like you get a glimpse into their true self. They're so relaxed, they're so at peace, they're just laughing and there's joy I think one word that we might use to describe that lack of uh, reservation would be the word freedom. Freedom. And what I want to show you today from this passage is that Jesus Christ, through his blood, is inviting every single person who believes in him to come into that level, that brand of freedom before God that you would come boldly into God's throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need, but that there would be this lack of res reservation, this lack of trepidation, but this enjoyment of God and who he is. And I hope to show you through the Old Testament sacrificial system that they were shadows, images of the real and true and good thing that Jesus Christ has provided for us today, all right? So let's read the passage, verse 1 through 14 together. And as we go through this passage, what you need to know is that a lot of it is actually a recap of things that he's already written in this letter. 
that the old covenant couldn't perfect the worshiper we're going to read about in this passage. That the high priest, when he went to offer sacrifices on the day of atonement, went once a year and offered a sacrifice for the nation, but also for himself, we're going to read in this passage. So we're going to see some things that we've already seen in this passage up to this point in the book of Hebrews, but there are a couple of things that we haven't seen that I'm going to try to draw out for you because they seem to be the concept that the author wants us to fixate upon together uh, today as we read this portion of the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, verse 2, was prepared. Uh, he's talking about the tabernacle. He says the first section of that tent in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called, verse 2, the holy place. And so what he's alluding to there is the Old Testament tabernacle, not the temple that they had in the era that they actually received this letter. He, the temple ended, ended up replacing the tabernacle, but he just goes back to the very first thing they had, the tent. It's kind of pure in the minds of the Hebrew Christian. So he goes back to the tent and he says, look, it had a couple of rooms. The first room had in it a, a golden lampstand, a table with the showbread of the presence of the Lord. And, uh, you you know, those were some of the elements that were found inside of that first room. Then he goes on and says, verse 3, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. It was the second and final room in that tabernacle. It was a very small little room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Having, verse 4, the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, or uh, a kind of angel of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's the author's comment. I'm going to come back and actually talk about them in detail. So he might not have been able to, but I have some time. But he just describes the second room. He says, in the Holy of Holies, you had, and it's interesting because he puts the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies rather than in the first room, which is actually where the Old Testament said that it existed. But since it was the, uh, uh, an altar that had incense that they carried into the Holy of Holies, he's thinking of it in the Holy of Holies rather than outside of it in just the first room, the holy place. He talks about the ark, some of the things in the ark, and the lid on the ark called the mercy seat. He says, these preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section or room, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, if we could leave verse 7 up there for a second. I want you to notice some things about the sacrifices of the priests. You had priests who would go into the first room all the time, every day. Then you had one priest called the high priest, who we've talked about in our, in, already in our study in the book of Hebrews. And he would go in 
in a very specific kind of way. Notice in verse 7, it says only the high priest goes. That means that in the Old Covenant, it was very exclusive. There was one person who would go into the presence of the Lord. Secondly, it was very rare that he would go in. It only happened once a year, it says there in verse 7, speaking of the Day of Atonement. And it was a fearful or trepidatious experience. That's alluded to when it says, and he would not go into God's presence without taking blood. And actually, uh, tradition tells us that it was a very fearful experience for the high priest. They would, they would actually traditionally put a rope around his ankles so, and bells on his garment so that they could hear him still moving. And if he died, they, the bells stopped moving in the presence of the Lord. They would use the rope and they would pull him out of God's presence. So it was not this like free kind of experience. Like, what are you doing today, high priest? I'm going to hang out with God. That's what I'm going to do. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was a very fearful trepidatious experience. In fact, the high priest traditionally would come out of the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and throw a party for his friends and family. And the message of the party was, I lived! (laughs) That's, That's the way that they went and approached the Lord in that era. And also notice there at the end of verse 7 that the sacrifice he offered for himself and for the people was for the unintentional sins of the people. There were sacrifices for the intentional sins of Israel, but there were things they didn't even know that they'd done, sins of omission or commission that needed sacrifice, and that's what the Day of Atonement was for. But of course, in Jesus, we have something completely opposite to verse 7, in that it is no longer exclusive, but for all of us who are covered by the blood of Jesus, it's no longer rare an annual tradition, but we can daily come boldly to his throne of grace. It's no longer filled with this kind of fear. We, of course, have reverence and respect for the living God, but he's our father. He's put his spirit inside of us. He's adopted us as his children, and so we come to him as our Abba Father, and Jesus' sacrifice was not just for our unintentional sins. Aren't you thankful for that? It was also for our intentional sins. So the sins that you just accidentally did, but also the sins you did very much on purpose, Jesus Christ died on the cross for. By this, verse 8, as we continue in this passage, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, he says, look, as long as the tabernacle is still standing and that first room is still standing, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired message that you can't go all the way into the throne room of God by yourself. You, you need something to get you all the way in there. But when Jesus came, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom when he died upon the cross. And after he ascended, the temple eventually was destroyed. It was a message from the Holy Spirit saying, access has now been granted by the blood of Jesus. You are no longer just changed externally, But your conscience, verse 9, can be perfected. You can be reformed, changed, transformed, verse 10. 
But verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In other words, when Jesus came, he didn't go into the Old Testament tabernacle. He went into the heavenly reality. We saw last week in chapter 8, verse 5, that the earthly tabernacle or temple is but a copy and shadow of the heavenly uh, temple or throne room of God. So where we're going is not to an earthly tent, but we're going into God's presence. He says, verse 12, Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, or excuse me, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The the idea there is that when the high priest went in, he secured something for the people of Israel on the day of atonement. But what Jesus secured for us was eternal atonement. Not a day of atonement, but eternal atonement. 4, verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So everything outside is changed by that Old Testament system. How much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Serve the living God. Today, what I want to show you from this passage is that if you're a believer, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, because without the shedding of blood, as we're going to see when we get into chapter 9, there is no, at the end of chapter 9, there is no remission for sins. What I want you to see is that if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, You have been set free by Jesus to serve God. Notice the last phrase of verse 14. This is part of what is a new concept in the book of Hebrews. Most everything else that we just read and I talked to you about has already been taught in the book of Hebrews, but he announces there at the end of verse 14 that we have been set free from our dead works to serve the living God. Now, I know that for many of us, when we think about serving God, uh, we, we have different images that we might conjure up in our minds. Some of you might even be thinking to yourself right now, like, okay, I know where this is going. At the end of the sermon, Nate's going to bust out a sign-up list, and we're going to apply to serve in the children's ministry, or the parking ministry, or the grill, or some other ministry in the church. And If the Holy Spirit is putting that on your heart, you need to obey the Holy Spirit. But that is not what the author is thinking of when he thinks about serving the living God. In the context, what he's talking about is the priesthood. The priesthood that went in before the Lord in the tabernacle. The priesthood that kept the oil filled to the brim in the lampstand so that the fire would burn bright. The priesthood that brought the fresh supply of 
the showbread every week before the Lord and set it out before him. The priesthood who morning and evening brought a specific kind of incense to burn inside of the tabernacle on the altar of incense as an emblem of the prayers of the nation to the God of Israel. And the priesthood who through their high priest once a year went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and got into the presence of the living God in front of the Ark of the Covenant and put the blood upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat where the engraved image of angels' wings were touching and asked God to atone for the nation for another year. That is what he's thinking of when he thinks of what it means to serve the living God. And so what I want to do, since Jesus has gone into not the copy and shadow and physical tabernacle, but into the presence, the throne room of God, and has made a way for us to go into his presence, what I want to do is I want to go back to looking in the first few verses at the elements that were found in the earthly tabernacle to help us understand the kind of service to God that we can have today. Don't worry, you and I aren't going to be going into any physical tabernacle. I don't, I don't have it set up in the parking lot. After service, you're going to go out and light candlesticks and stuff like that. No, they were emblematic of something beautiful that I think the Lord has invited every single believer by the blood of Jesus Christ to come into. So let me show you five things. Starting with this, number one, we have been set free to serve God to, number one, have God at the center of our lives. This is possible only because of the blood of Jesus. You see, without the new covenant, I could make my commitments to God over and over again, but I could never keep those commitments. I could say to God, I'm placing you first. I could say to God, you're number one. I could say to God, you're the priority of my life, but I could not structure my life in a way in which that was actually a reality until the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of me, until he began to write his law upon my mind and upon my heart and to change and transform me from the inside out. And the reason why I'm saying this one first comes from the first element that he mentions there in verse two. He simply says, a tent was prepared. Now, I like that he does this. Because at the time that the author wrote this book, the temple was standing. And he could have told the Hebrew Christians about the temple that was there in Jerusalem. But because he didn't, and he alluded to the tent, it would make them think about the first time that they received the instructions for the tabernacle from the Lord. They were basically on a massive camp out in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. And God told them to build this tent, and whenever the pillar of smoke or the, the, or the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke stopped, the people of Israel would unpack their belongings and they would camp until that presence of God or that image of the presence of God moved again. And they would construct, rebuild the tabernacle, the tent in that place. After they built it, the Levites would set up their camp all around the tabernacle, and then Every tribe in Israel, some in the north, some in the south, some in the east, and some on the west, would also camp around the tent. And when the pillar of fire or smoke began to move again, 
They would pack up all of the tabernacle belongings and cover them all up, and they'd begin to move out. Six of the tribes would go first. Then the Levites with the ark and the tabernacle belongings would go in the middle. And then the last six tribes would go behind them. It was a way for the people of Israel to say something very simple. God is at the center of our lives. He's at the center of who we are. He is the one that we are centering our whole lives around. We are looking to him. We are thinking about him. We are building our lives upon him and his truth. When Jesus comes into our lives, he gives us the Spirit of God who enables this to actually be a possibility. I'm sure you've had times in your life where you've said that God is the main thing. I mean, it's like the answer every Christian knows, right? If you ask like the question, you know, who is the most important being in your life? We all know that the right answer is God. God's number one. But I'm sure we've all had times in our lives where we've said that God is first, but our lives have actually not reflected that reality. You see, it is a struggle. Like we saw last week when we looked in Galatians chapter five about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, it is a struggle to by the power of the spirit of God enable or live our lives in a way where God is at the center of our lives. But the Lord wants to help you with this. But you must understand that it does not come naturally. It is a battle that we must live out every single day of our lives. I want to read to you a quote from a book called Strange Days, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval by a pastor philosopher from Australia named Mark Sayers. I'll put it on the screen for you. Listen to what he said. He said, we are born for struggle, created for a cause formed for a great battle. We as individuals find meaning in struggle, and the church is God's army. However, in the West, she has been away from battle for too long. Not only has she, the church, forgotten how to fight, but she's forgotten that she's in a battle. What is more, she's come to expect peace. Resistance is foreign to her. What battle, she says, the armor of God is gathering dust in the corner. You see, the reality of the Christian life is that it is a struggle, it is, a to- it is filled with toil, it is a fight to have God at the center of our lives, to be about his mission here on earth. I was talking to our Sunday night folks this last uh, week. You know, we have a couple services on Sunday morning, 9 and 11, If you didn't know that, welcome to the 11 o'clock service. I'm so glad that you're here. And then we also have a 6 o'clock service. It's just a replica of the morning services. We call it the third service. And I give the same teaching. And it's a much smaller group of people that come out on Sunday night. And last week, I was just sharing with them the reason that we hold that service. I just said, you know, part of the reason for it is that we realize that we live in a culture that doesn't have some kind of massive respect for this sacred time of Sunday morning at 9 and 11. That we live in a culture where many people are going to be working at that time, and many jobs and careers, it's necessary that they work at that time. I, for one, am thankful that there are law enforcement that are working at 9 and 11 on Sunday mornings. And so what we believe is that we want to provide a way for people who, whether it's for work or because they're 
their kids' baseball team also doesn't respect Sunday mornings or whatever it might be, that they would say, we are going to be a people who center our lives upon the Lord. We are going to come to his house, sit under his word, honor him uh, together with our church family. It takes work to be a person that says, I'm centering my life upon the living God. Okay, the second thing I want you to see is this. Jesus has set us free to serve God, to number two, to bear God's light for others, to bear God's light for others. You see, the first element that the author talks about inside of the tabernacle is the golden lampstands. He says in verse two of chapter nine, he says, in which were the lampstand or was the lampstand. Now, the golden lampstand inside the tabernacle was massive. It was 75 pounds of pure gold. It was one massive candlestick in the center from which on either side jutted three other candlesticks, so seven lights in total. You might think of it or or have called it a menorah. And the job of the priest was to go into the tabernacle and make sure that the oil had been changed and replaced so that the fire could burn brightly. And one of the things that God wanted was for the fire never to go out. And during some times where the people of Israel were lethargic in their worship of the Lord, the fire would go out. But God's desire was that that fire would always and perpetually burn. And as we think about that image, we should ask, what was God trying to communicate about himself and our service, our true service in the real tabernacle to him? Well, think about this. Jesus, when he came, announced in places like John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Now now think about this as well. He also said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So which is it? Who's the light of the world, Jesus or his people? Jesus or his disciples? Jesus or his church? Well, the right answer is that both of us are the light of the world in the sense that he is the true light of the world, the light for all nations and all peoples, and that he wants to come into us and through us shine his light into the world in which and the communities in which we are currently living. In fact, when John was on the island of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation, he had a vision, and in his vision, he saw these golden lampstands and Jesus walking in the midst of these golden lampstands. And the question was, what are these golden lampstands? And Jesus gave the interpretation in Revelation chapter 1. He said, these lampstands are the churches. In other words, the church, the body of Christ, you individually, but us collectively, we are to be the light of Christ shown out into the community, the world that we are living in. I think we need to remember that from time to time. Because so often we can stand for something lesser than the kingdom of God. Something lesser than the message of Christ. And become vehement and strong in our opinions about things lesser than the thing that we should be most vehement, most strong, and brightest about, the glory, the wonder that is Jesus 
and his glorious gospel. I love what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. He said, Timothy, I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you. Look, some of you, you used to shine brightly for the Lord. You used to share your faith. You used to talk of the Lord. You used to center yourself upon the Lord. But as time went by, your fire began to decrease. But listen to what Paul said to Timothy and stir up, keep ablaze that gift that God gave to you. He put his spirit inside of you. Imagine those Old Testament priests going in, putting the new oil in and saying, man, the fire has got to burn bright. Have that mentality about being a light to the world that you're living in. All right, number three, think of this one. Jesus has set us free to serve God to so that we might, number three, receive God's sustenance for ourselves. Receive God's sustenance for ourselves. Now, I realize we don't use the word sustenance every day, and you, you know, so let me explain this for a moment. This one connects to the next thing the author talks about there in verse two. He says there was the table and the bread of the presence. To the left, when you walked into the tabernacle, to the left-hand side, there was this small little table. It was wooden, but overlaid with gold and it had rings in it so that they could put poles in it and carry it and all of that but on top of that table every week they would change out and they would place 12 uh, loaves of bread they were probably circular in nature like a pita or something like that flat and more than likely the 12 were there to indicate the 12 tribes in Israel and what was happening there, they called it the bread of the presence of God. It was like a way to say, because the priests would then eat this bread, it was a way of saying, we as a people, through our priestly representatives, we are receiving nourishment from God. He is strengthening us. He is filling us. He is giving us what we need in life. He is our sustenance. He satisfies our need and desires. This reminds us, of course, of what Jesus said also in John's gospel. John chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, it's good for us to remember that when we come to Christ, it's not just leaving certain things, but coming to something that is better. Sometimes you hear people share their testimony, and it almost sounds like uh, what they used to have. You know, I used to do this, and I used to do that, and I used to, and, they, and then they get to their current life, and it's like, and now I am so bored to tears. But I used to do all of these things, but I don't anymore. But I used to, but I don't, and I'm forgiven, and this life in Jesus is so good. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we had a young man share his testimony, and the way it came across was like, yeah, I used to, and it was terrible. And now this is what I have in Jesus. He is my sustenance. He has given me something better. It's not just that I've left something. It's that I've been given something greater than I could have ever had before. You see, God does not only call us away from an old life, but into a new life. Do not think of Christianity as merely the repression of desire, but God giving you better desires. 
I want to show you a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Weight of Glory. He has a great way of describing this concept. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh, we think we've left so much to come and follow Jesus. No, that is not the case. God is our sustainer. He's the one that fills us and satisfies us. I've been thinking about this from the story found in the book of Acts, chapter 8. There, there was a man that was coming home back to Ethiopia from a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. He was not a Jew, but he was interested in the God of Israel. And on his way home, this Ethiopian man, who was also a eunuch because he served in Queen Candace's courts, he was reading a scroll that I assume he purchased while he was in Jerusalem, the scroll of Isaiah. God had told one of his men, a man named Philip, to go down into this desert place. An angel told him to go down into Gaza, a desert place. And so he goes down and he sees this caravan. He, he then hears the Spirit of God say to him, overtake the chariot. And so he goes. He hears this man reading from Isaiah 53, which is so explicitly about Jesus. And as he hears him reading from Isaiah 53, Philip asks the question, do you know what you're reading? And the guy just says the perfect thing. He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me. <laughs> I mean, it's like Philip just had it like laid out for him, just the perfect open door. It was like on a tee, like, Philip, if you can't lead this guy to Christ, you can't lead anybody to Christ, man. I mean, it was just like right there. Like, How can I understand this unless somebody explain it to me? And Philip got up in the chariot, and from that scripture to the other scriptures, he expounded Christ to this man. Eventually, he believed saw a body of water as they continued to travel, and he asked Philip, he said, what keeps me from being baptized right now? Philip said nothing. They hopped out of the chariot. He was baptized right in that moment, and then God took Philip, actually translated him, moved into an, him to another place, and the Ethiopian man went back down to Ethiopia, a born-again, saved individual. But one of the things that I love about that story is the struggle that that man was likely going through in his stage and state of life. Let me read to you what it says that he read in Isaiah. It says, In his humiliation, speaking of Jesus, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. That sounds like, like the eunuch. He's reading there about Jesus who was cut off with no family, no generation, and he's sitting there, and there are many scriptures like that surrounding Isaiah 53. Specifically, I mean, I'll even use the word, eunuchs who do not have families. And he's reading all of these things, and he's going, who is this guy? And Jesus comes in, or excuse me, Philip comes in and tells him, look, you're thinking about your life and 
and how you don't have all of these different things, but Jesus has something bigger for you than all of that. He's gonna give you a name that lasts forever if you believe in him. He's gonna give you family in Christ if you believe in him. He can give you sons and daughters in Christ if you trust him and are faithful to him. Jesus would be that man's sustenance is what I'm trying to say. The one who satisfied him in his life with God. All right, now let's move on to the next thing. I'll be brief about this fourth one. Because the next thing that it says is that in verse 4 of Hebrews 9, there was a golden altar of incense. Now I do have to mention that it's interesting where he puts the altar. In his retelling of it, the altar is in the Holy of Holies, not in the first room, but in the second room. But when God designed the, the tabernacle, the altar was to be in the first room, not in the second room. But the priest was to take, the high priest, the, uh, some incense from the altar, put it in a, a, what's the word I'm looking for right now? Censor. Censor? Yeah, okay. I'm thinking, I'm confusing census and censor right now in my mind. So I'm glad I didn't say census. That would have been so embarrassing to have said census out loud. <laughs> they put it in the censor and would, they would bring that into the Holy of Holies. So the author, he's thinking of it that way. That's where it belongs. That's where the incense belongs, is in the, the room with God. This always stood as an image of prayer from the people of Israel. Because morning and evening, they would replace this incense. Morning and evening, the priests would go in and offer a prayer on behalf of the nation. Look, number four, what Jesus has set you free for in your service of God is to be free to pray to God. To be free to pray to God. You get to pray not because of your works, but because of Christ's work. He made the way for you to have access to the living God, to cry out to the living God. Uh, yesterday, Pastor Jeff was sharing at our men's breakfast, and he shared a few verses, but one, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. I'll, I'll give you guys this verse today. If you, if you, if if you have never memorized a Bible verse, you're going to memorize a Bible verse right now. It's, it's simply this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Can you guys say that? Pray without ceasing. You are the kind of people that memorize Bible verses. That's what you are. I can see it. You are Bible-memorizing people. You just memorized 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. But how can we pray throughout our day? How can we pray throughout life? How can we always be in constant communion and contact with the living God? Well, it's by the blood of Jesus. This new covenant has won that kind of access for us. Okay, before we wrap it up and take communion together as a church, let's look at one final element inside of that tabernacle to show us the better ministry that we get to have because of Jesus's better ministry. We are free to serve God, number five, to partake of God's grace and mercy, to partake of God's grace and mercy. And what I mean by this is very simple. He talked about the ark. He actually mentioned three things inside of the ark before then talking about the lid on the ark, the mercy seat, that had angels, cherubim, You see, in chapter 4, we saw the author say, you can, because of the blood of Jesus, come boldly to God's throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. The Ark of the Covenant was a shadow and a copy, an emblem, if you will, of God's eternal throne. This is like 
You're there in God's presence. But what was in the ark? Well, he mentions three things. He talks about, number one, a golden jar or urn filled with manna. Number two, he talks about Aaron's rod that budded. And number three, he talks about the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now go with me for a second. All three of those things thought of in a specific way could have reminded the people of Israel of some failures in their lives and walks before God. First of all, the manna was God's daily provision. But what God said was, I'm going to give it to you every morning. It's going to be food that's out there every day outside of your tent. You just wake up in the morning, and before the sun comes up, you go out into the field, and the manna is going to be there. It was called manna because that means in Hebrew, what is it? And they just didn't really know what it was, but they just knew it's, I mean, it was like the perfect food. You know, you just like, I don't know what it is, but it gave them everything that they needed. All the carbs, proteins, fats, it was all there inside of the manna. They didn't know what it was, but that's what they ate every single day. But God said on the seventh day, or excuse me, on the sixth day, go out and collect twice as much as you need because then on the seventh day, you get to rest. You don't go out early collecting that manna because you get to sleep in. That's sleep-in day. You make pancakes, you hang out, you know, you, you're just chilling on that seventh day. You know what some people did on the seventh day? They went out looking for manna. Uh, right away, on the, the very beginning, they failed what God had given them. Aaron's rod that budded. Let me tell you about that one. The whole reason for that was because there was a a thing that began to swell up amongst the people of Israel. You see, they saw Aaron, and they saw Aaron's sons, and they got their priestly outfits and garments, and they got to offer sacrifices and go in and hang out with God. And people started whispering about that. They're like, hey, that's nepotism. That's Moses' older brother. Those are Moses' nephews. Why do they get to be the ones to go in to serve God in the tabernacle? And they began saying stuff like this. They said, all of us are priests to God. All of us get to go in to the tabernacle. And in response, Moses stepped back. God struck a big group of them. The people then complained about that. So this is what God said. He said, take a rod, a staff from every single tribe in Israel, all 12. Tribe of Levi, rename it. Make it Aaron's rod. And put him all into the tabernacle. And pull him out the next day. Moses did just that. He pulled him out the next day. Everybody else's rod was exactly the same. But Aaron's rod had blossomed, and there were ripe almonds on this rod that he'd previously just been walking around with as he trekked through the wilderness. And it was a way for God to say to the people of Israel, I chose this guy. I chose this guy. You should not reject him. Then finally, the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments were the thing that when the people of Israel heard them, they said, we will do all your will and word, and they failed in each one of those commandments. In fact, I think you could build a case that Moses received the commandments on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and before he even came all the way down from the mountain, they had already broken all Ten Commandments. He threw them down on the ground. They broke. He had to go back up, and God had to put a, give him a second set of stones. All three of these emblems would remind them of a failure before God. In fact, there was a story in 1 Samuel chapter 6 where the citizens of an Israelite town called Beth Shemesh, the ark came to them 
seemingly by accident, and they took the lid off, and they looked in, and at that time, the only thing in there were the Ten Commandments. The rod and the manna was not there also, but they saw the Ten Commandments, and many of them died in that instant. It was like a message to say, you need something between you and this law that you could not keep. All of us are dead in trespasses and sins. It was an Old Testament way of saying just that. But here's the thing. Though all of those things represented some of the historical failures in the nation of Israel, for us today, by the blood of Jesus, they speak to us and encourage us of the grace and the mercy that God wants to give to us in our lives. Look, you've had times where, like Israel, you didn't trust God in your daily experience of life. You would have been like those people on the sixth day or the seventh day saying, I'm going to go out and just see if there's anything out there. I don't trust the Lord enough. I, I, I don't believe that he could provide twice as much on the sixth day. But, but the Lord, by his new covenant, he can create a thing in you where you do trust him with your everyday experience in life. And like Aaron's rod that budded, yeah, there was a time in your life and in my life where we could bear no fruit to God. Where was somebody else getting all the fruit? Somebody else doing all the stuff. But now in Christ Jesus, he has given us jobs to do in Christ. He's given us opportunities to live out in Christ to where we, if we abide in Jesus, can bear fruit unto God. And those 10 commandments, the word of God, the law of God that we could not keep previously, well, what did we see last week in chapter eight? By the Spirit. He writes his law onto our minds and onto our hearts, the very thing that I could not keep that drove me to Jesus so that I could be completed in Christ Jesus. Now I can keep by the power of the Holy Spirit as I walk with the Lord. This is part of the grace and the mercy that God is trying to give to us as we come to him. This is another way of him saying, come boldly to his throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. So, again, verse 14. We have been purified in our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He wants you to be a free person before him. Like little Violet, without any inhibitions, coming into his presence, serving him, enjoying him. I'll close with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Of the new covenant, Peter writes, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.